if I knew from the beginning that I was auditioning for Armand, I would never be here, I think. <laughs> this is the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire Podcast, and I'm your host, Naomi Perrigan, writer, comedian, and a vampire lover who is now lost because her vampire show is over. Now, y'all, we've talked about every episode of AMC's Interview with the Vampire, and it has been a journey. Today, however, we are doing something a little different. First, we get up close and personal with the mysterious Rashid. Yes, we've got actor Asad Zaman, who wowed us all in the finale. Then we debrief the entire first season with the greatest vampire experts of all, showrunner Rollin Jones and executive producer Mark Johnson. You called in with questions, and honey, they better have answers. And we'll wrap this season of the pod with a special treat. Actress Alexandra Daddario joins us. She stars in AMC's next Anne Rice series, Mayfair Witches, which premieres in January. That's right, vampires have to take a break and move over, because we got witches. Okay, there are spoilers for the entire first season of Interview with the Vampire coming up in this episode. And so if you get spoiled, consider it a moral failing. First up, Asad Zaman. Asad, welcome. So happy to have you on the podcast. Hi, Naomi. Thank you for having me. I play Rashid in Interview with the Vampire. Well, well, okay, now, <laughs> we know Rashid is not Rashid. Okay? What? what do you know? We know Rashid is Armand. Oh, no, Don't she said it. Don't play with me. Shh, no one's supposed to know. We all know. Oh, great. Okay. Hey, hi. Hello, guys. Uh, so, I'm Asad, and I play Armand. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Ooh, 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 the dramatic reveal. <laughs> Had me the most dramatic of reveals. Now, can you just say, who is Armand? We need to know, who are you? So Armand comes into the picture, into Louis's life, in the second half of Interview with a Vampire, after the events of New Orleans. They meet in Paris, and Armand is immediately, like most people, completely enthralled by everything about Louis and who he is and what he stands for. And he's changed from person he is before he met Louis, which was a person uh, a bit lost in the monotony of his life, I think, is the way I describe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, it's been 500 years. It's definitely gotten monotonous. <laughs> mm, 514. Okay, yeah. yes, 514. <laughs> it's like, okay, yes, we get it. You needed some love in your life. Yeah. Now, did you know from the beginning, like when you got the sides for this character, were you told you were ultimately going to be playing Armand? I think, Naomi, if I knew from the beginning that I was auditioning for Armand, I would never be here. <laughs> I think the <laughs> think just the prospect, the idea, the the notion of that would uh, send me over the edge. And <laughs> I would completely crumble. Of course, of course. Um, no, I had no idea. So I got an audition with a couple of scenes with Daniel Malloy. And it was a character called Rashid, who is the assistant. And they were fairly clear, concise. And I kind of was like, okay, I, I, I know who this guy is. He's highly efficient. He has skill and care in what he does. And it's a very clear part to play. And I kind of went in and did those tapes fairly confidently. And then I got a recall and I got another scene added, which had a bit more subtext. And I was like, well, Rashid has a bit of a sting to him than I thought he would be able to have, you know, with his status. And then I get a third recall and Rollin asked to have a meeting with me on Zoom. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He asked if he could just have a quick chat about the character with me, give a few notes, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, of course, it'd be an absolute, uh, it'd be amazing to, to meet you and, and chat. Thinking, Why? <laughs> <laughs> Why is he wasting his time talking to me about Rashid when you've got Louis and Lestat to sort of focus on? I was like, who the hell is Rashid? Anyway, I'm like terrified. So I get onto Zoom with him and then he went, okay, okay. So um, basically Rashid is in disguise and he's not Rashid. He's actually the vampire Armand. Oh man. And then he proceeds to tell me all about Armand and I'm sat there on Zoom like this. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And all the while I've got my hand on the chair, kind of gripping it tighter and tighter to where the handle's going to break. And I'm just thinking, just don't lose your cool. Don't lose your cool. Don't lose your cool. Anyway, he kind of took me through it and he just went, so look, this is, this has to be a secret. We don't, we don't want to, we don't want to leak this, but that means we just want to see a bit more from you. And I said, oh my God, thank you so much for, you know, telling me. And, and yes, of course, I want to kind of, you know, see, see where I can go with this. And then I got off the call and I almost started crying. (laughs) (laughs) So how much time did you get though? How much time did you have between having that conversation and having that next callback? Because you basically need to reinterpret the whole character. You have to go from being like, I'm a no-nonsense assistant to I am the vampire king. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and how do you do that in a, in a tape? Exactly. They gave me maybe eight or nine hours between that call with Rollin and the next tape that, that I sent over. And I did another, I think another four rounds after that. No, four rounds that's after insane. That. Yeah, yeah. It was a grueling process. That's wild. So now Rowlin has already told you about the third audition, who Rashid is. But once you get to set, everyone knows, right? Or is it still a secret you're withholding? Actually, I think, apart from the main cast, a lot of the crew didn't know. Wow. You just kind of say, like, quiet in a corner and say, like, I don't want to just even draw attention. Maybe they'll forget. (laughs) Yeah. That was my initial kind of approach to Rashid before I knew he was Armand. He just wants to make sure he does a really good job and that he doesn't get fired or killed. Right. Right, 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 right. I mean, simple joys, yeah. simple joys, simple goals. <laughs> now, while you were filming the first season, what conversations did you have with Rollin about the plan for Armand in the show? We did discuss, obviously, the events that happen in interview when we see him and when we're going to see him in season two. Mm-hmm. A lot of those are, are crucial elements in Louis' story and in turn Armand's. And we want to honor them as much as we can. Where we, uh, I guess, where Rollin has curiosities is when we look into Armand's past and look into how he became who he is and where he came from. There's some obvious differences to me Mm -hmm. that I think we want to explore and we want to see whether there's anything interesting to be picked from that. And it's a really delicate thing, I think, because his story, it's so complex and it's so... He's messed up. What? You mean a vampire is messed up? Oh, okay. I don't know if I can handle that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we think vampires are messed up in general. I mean, he was messed up before he became a vampire. Mm. In order to sort of understand where he is now, you need to understand the trauma of of his life. Yeah. So there's things that we want adapting and and mutating and, and flowering into new things. But the events that make Armand who he is have to be traumatic enough and nuanced enough and complex enough for us to believe that he turns into this who he is well well now you know given all this what you're saying too it does now kind of still a nightmare but explain the seven rounds of auditions Mm. yeah i'm gonna tell you this though aside honey your eyes are everything and the eye work that's happening in season one there are so many moments where you like come in and just like Give Malloy a look or give Louie a look without oh, saying a word. It was, I used to, I used to leave set sometimes thinking, bloody hell, I said, you're extra with those, uh, with those <laughs> eye rolls and with those looks sometimes. <laughs> like you need to, you need to hang back. And I think, you know, all props to the editing team who have to sift away through all those <laughs> dirty looks that he gives him and, and go, okay, let's just, let's just make it nuanced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was also very aware, I think just as an actor, that I have a duty to the story that's being told in that moment, right there, right now, this season, mm-hmm. is Louis' story, is Louis recounting his life to to Daniel. And their dynamic as well is really important. So as much as I knew Armand had to be sizzling in the background and, you know, he had to come in and make himself, you know, present when he wants to be and then also back away, I was like, I have to sort of honour their story as well. I, we don't want the audience to start asking too many questions too early because then it deviates from what's important, what the themes that are important to explore in the season. I do think what made that moment, like Rashid reveals himself, I screamed. And I think that is a testament to the way you played it. It only works because Rashid has so cleverly, it's almost like you kind of forgot about him. And then it's like, 
love of his life. And then, of course, then I said, honey, Louie, you've learned nothing. You do not need another older vampire up in here who can walk in the sun. Yeah. Well, honey, that's a power dynamic right there. Well, yeah, exactly. We we just hope that he's not making the same mistakes all over again. We hope. I mean, I'm very invested. I get very stressed out. I, I yelled at Jacob about it. <laughs> Given what we have seen... And again, it's it's little, it's you know these mm-hmm. small moments. What do you think of the relationship? Like, would you say like, do you believe Armand and Louis have a healthier relationship? Oh, we're just gonna have to find out. <laughs> I will say that Armand is a lot more tender in his loving than Lestat. Like, if I had to say Lestat is amazing as at showing love and showing the romance and showing the theater of of love like he he embodies it so well and he you know he exudes it mm. Armand receives love more Armand he's quite desperate to receive love he isn't as well versed in in the language of romance mm. i think that doesn't mean that he doesn't want it. He really, mm. really does want it. It is interesting just to think about him that way, especially given the role he's playing. Because my question would be, why is he pretending to be Rashid this whole time? And how does it feel for Armand to have to hide who he really is? Mm. I think it's incredibly painful for him to be witness to the love of his life, talking about another love of his life. Mm-hmm. The way he describes Lestat, the way he looks, and the way he kind of embellishes in those, in going away with those memories of Lestat is so painful for for Rashid slash Armand to listen to and, and mm. be witness to. And then there is also curiosity with with Daniel that is another aspect of why Armand let this interview take place. I think there's a hidden history with. Right. Daniel, or hidden kind of story there. Right, right. Because Rashid was there during that first interview with Malloy, right? And once you discover that, a lot of Rashid's behavior makes sense. I don't mean to bring it back to my favorite thing, which is your eye work. But when I go back to those scenes, I get these moments from Rashid slash Armand where he is almost like waiting to see if Malloy remembers him. Yeah. And I think this is another brilliant aspect to the show that that makes it exciting for not only the fans of the book, but all the new fans as well, is that we don't know now. We actually don't know what transpired in San Francisco because this is new territory because mm-hmm. he's not there in the books. We were all under the assumption that Louis was on his own when they first met him and mm-hmm. Daniel. So that whole world is going to be another aspect that's going to be really interesting to explore. Right. How far did Louis get? Right. And what did Armand have to do to stop him? And has that got anything to do with why Daniel is there now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, given that we are at the end of season one, you know, look, me and all the other viewers, we're beside ourselves. Okay. We're struggling. We are making <laughs> friendship bracelets. We are on a crisis chain. Okay. <laughs> What we need is something to hold on to, something to look forward to in this dark, dreary life. That is why I need you. I need you here for an extended version of what we call a little taste. All right? This is the segment where we talk about what's to come. And we just need to know, can you just give us a little taste (laughs) of what's to come in season two? I can promise you theatrics. Thank you. Thank you. I know that there's going to be vespers and and romance is going to be in the air. Okay, can you tell me where we are? Where are we geographically? Oh, we're we're in Paris. Sorry. I should have I should have led with that. Okay, so the first thing I can promise you, we're gonna be going to Paris. Gorgeous, gorgeous, just like Carrie Bradshaw. Exactly. And and it's a gorgeous part of the story and their journey to Paris is is incredible and the showdown has to happen in Paris. <laughs> um so yeah, we have to go there. Yeah. Okay, that's good. This is good. This is something to hold on to, something for my fanfic. We love this. I'm very obsessed. Oh, God, what's my legacy going to be? Do you know what I mean? I'll be watching. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Okay, now I'm just, now I've lost the plot. You've already got an amazing legacy, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, Now that's how you end a season of a podcast. A guest telling you you have an amazing legacy. (laughs) Um, 
Assad, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me. And it is just so exciting to talk to you, especially because, I mean, honey, a dramatic reveal, if there ever was one. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been super cathartic for me as well, because... I think I'm getting ulcers all over my stomach from from holding it in for so long. <laughs> it's nice to let it out, yes. you know, it's nice to go, ah. And all we need to do now is just unleash our mind in season two. Ooh, I can't wait. Okay, so you're going to be back on the pod, okay? Because we're going to have a lot to get into. So you just better get used to this because I'll be like, Asad, Asad, I have questions. I have questions. I need answers. <laughs> I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Okay, what is sweetheart? Assad really disarmed me, honey, because I came in shooketh, and then tea was spilleth. And I said, okay, okay, I think I'm into you now. I think I'm warming up to Louis and Armand as a couple after that interview. Hey, Naomi, it's Eric. Or you know me as Danny, I guess, or Dan. Um, I just want to tell you, I just listened to the Jacob and Mara episode, and that was just terrific. And even though I've talked with Mara a lot about the show and Jacob, of course, there was new information there that was just fascinating. And I love it. And your enthusiasm is infectious. It's been a fun party. So um, anyway, thank you. And that was great. Thanks. Bye. Okay, that was good. That was good. Were y'all listening to that? Now it's time to welcome two very special interview with the vampire experts to the podcast. The evil geniuses, the diabolical masterminds who created a show that was so terrifying and sexy, it makes me wonder who their therapists are. Showrunner Rollin Jones and executive producer Mark Johnson. Do you mind introducing yourselves, saying what you do on the show? I'm Rollin Jones. I'm a writer, you know, in charge of writing the show, all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Uh, this is Mark Johnson. I'm one of the executive producers. And the man who spoke before me just now, Roland Jones, created this show. And all of us are in his debt and servitude. Uh, Mark and Roland, thank you so much for joining me. I have to tell you, I have not been all in on a show in so many years, okay? I have not felt this alive. I haven't felt this electric in years. So thank you for giving me and my husband something to hold on to. Keep the love fresh. You took a wildly popular piece of intellectual property. You made it fresh and new. But now, you know you got to do a season two. How are you both feeling? Is there pressure? Is there a sense of, okay, we did the first one. Now we can really dig in. Uh, Yeah, so I'm actually... Just turning the corner about being excited about season two and not being scared out of my mind about it. Because it's cha- it's challenging, right? The, the the second half of the interview with the vampire, there's some really lovely passages, but it's a lot of people sitting down and talking. It's a whole new period, a whole new continent, but it's, it's characters who Roland has already created. So I'm feeling actually quite confident and excited and, and just, you know— a buzz about what we're going to do next season. Mark, let's talk about you, honey, because you are just out here with a resume. You've been the executive producer on a lot of AMC shows, including, oh, I don't know, Breaking Bad. Oh, I don't know, Rectify. Oh, I don't know, Better Call Saul. Okay? (laughs) But those are very different, obviously, from the Anne Rice universe. So I'm very curious about what attracted you to the genre of vampires, to the world of Anne Rice, that made you say, get me on board. It's a good question because I was not familiar with Anne Rice to begin with. And uh, my excitement, quite frankly, came from what Roland did with this. I read the first, his first script his, for the pilot, and I thought, oh my God, this is extraordinary. And read Anne Rice, and I realized all of the treasures that were in there and what mm-hmm. Roland was taking advantage of and what needed some sort of redressing Mm -hmm. he was doing. Mm -hmm. Roland, can you explain to me this Mm. process? You know, how did you pitch yourself as the showrunner of this? Mm. Um, I came back to the loving arms of AMC. I'd done um, some work with them before, and there were a lot of really savvy executives. I had a big overall meeting here at 19 Things I Want to Do for You Guys. Talk, 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 talk. As I'm leaving the door, one of them goes, you know, we forgot to mention uh, our bosses bought the Anne Rice books. And I stopped... (laughs) 
<laughs> and I put everything down, sat back down and said, we're going to take another 45 minutes for this meeting. And by the, by the time <laughs> I walked out, I kind of knew that's what I was going to do. Okay. Um, and, and then they, they put me through a gauntlet of things to prove that I was the guy. And it wasn't just about, oh, what's a good pilot story? What's a good first season? It was, what does this thing look like eight years from now? Okay. Did you ever, ever have any misgivings, any doubt? No, I, I was just excited because I thought I really wanted to do something grand and big. So I have like a little tiny little QB production company, and I had a bunch of my uh, my theater pals sort of build a visual world, a costume world. We just I said, let's build it like a little Ang Lee thing. Let's try to know everything we can about it before we go in. So the more people you had around and the more collaborative it got, um, the more it felt battle-tested. Mm-hmm. Look. Let's talk about Louis being black. I'm obsessed because, but let me tell you why though. Let me tell you what I really enjoy about it is because I feel as though we are in this age of adaptations and reboots where there will be a gender swap or a change in race. And that is kind of the extent of it. Meaning we made that change. Look what we did. Isn't that fresh and new and hip? And it felt as though in making this change, you got more story. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Like you were able to mine that fact four more story points and more of a like a new dynamic in this relationship you know and you're both you know i'm sitting here with you you know for the listener these two men are famously white okay (laughs) famously aggressively white alabaster kings before me and i'm wondering about you know the choice to do that Mm -hmm. and what it was to execute it I kind of came around to his ethnicity through a very weird way, which is through Lestat. So there's a very famous sort of rewrite of Lestat, starting with book two. He's an aggressively mm-hmm. different character than he was in book one. and that, that, But that's the Lestat that she carried on for the rest of time. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that should be Lestat. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to take the given circumstances that are set with Lestat, and put him back into this time period. And so he had this sort of super emo relationship with this guy named Nikki. And then he had a very uh, excitable relationship with his mother as his second <laughs> companion choice. Um, and uh-huh. get into that season three, y'all. <laughs> and then I was like, let's give Lestat a legitimate third mm-hmm. attempt at trying to figure out how to be with somebody for the rest of his life. And how do you not repeat your mistakes? Mm. So I started from there. And I was I wanted somebody who had some money because I think he wanted to be, you know, with his with his own folks there. Mm-hmm. And I think he wanted someone, I thought, who could fight back and who could be a challenge and who would force him to restrain himself. And nobody at AMC was was really interested in seven seasons of The Regretful Plantation Owner. So, you know, <laughs> even with that, though, you wanted to have some connective threads to the novel. So we made Louis come from a, a lineage that once did own a plantation, did own slaves. The other thing was sort of aesthetic. If you were going to take away this sort of the ruffled shirts and all the swampy goodness, and you wanted to make this, oh, okay, something new. What's the next hot time that had us? A sense of smell and taste and sound. Bertha Jazz seemed pretty, pretty right on. And it just so happened there was a spot at, at that historical time where a black man could get in on some business and still have the sort of morally gray thing that owning a plantation would. And I don't know, it all actually clicked into place pretty quickly. That's so cool. You know, as you said, it makes sense. It feels like you followed the logic, so to speak. The other thing you're trying to do, Naomi, is trying to build as much inherent conflict, enough to not burn through in a season. You want seven or eight years of conflict and uh, distress and vulnerability in both of them. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to load up Louis with as many contradictions and as many unsettled things inside him as possible. Now, how do you decide when you deviate from Anne's book. Mm. Are there any rules when it comes to what you can invent and when you need to stick to the original? Were you in the writer's room being like, WWARD, what would Anne Rice do? Yeah, that was big. Really? That was essential. There were a couple of caveats. Make it here and now. Make it grand and big. Mm-hmm. But we said, you know, look, she she wrote a very transgressive, groundbreaking novel in 1973 and try to put her in the room where she was tasked in 20. 21 with making a TV show out of this. Mm-hmm. And you want it, there's no reason to do something if you're going to just run, 
you know, rough shot over it. So you're constantly, constantly revisiting the book. Mm-hmm. And that's not only in the room when you're building story, but that's when you're in draft. That's when you're after production draft. That's when you're last minute, like little things. And you find some things that you had passed over. You didn't think were relevant. Like I'm screaming back at you and dropping in as much and as we could. And that we were going to write this sort of heightened language that is in the novel. We're going to make our actors talk like that. She is our safety net all the time. That makes sense. Obviously, viewers are in love with Jacob and Sam. People are tweeting me photos of them eating ice cream. We call ourselves hashtag ice cream high. <laughs> the fandom is strong. Can you tell me about how you found Jacob and Sam and the process of deciding they were Louis and Lestat? Well, obviously, nine billion people audition. Kind of get down to like 10 actors that you like on both sides. The simple math of it is, is the second those two got into their Zoom rooms together, it was very clear something very dynamic was happening. On Jacob's side, you know, right, it's this sort of genuine warmth, kindness, humanity. Like you were like, okay, for, for a character who's going to make a number of questionable choices, how do you make them want to love him? And on Sam, I saw his face and I said, no fucking way. No fucking way, that guy, this chiseled, stupid, chiseled, you know, and his his locks and his dreamy eyes. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then I pressed play. And uh, and he he really knew how big we were gonna go. It was wildly specific and subtle. It was it was in his voice, right? There was something a little Jeff Bridges star man about it that I was like, oh, this guy feels like an alien. And he feels other than us. Mm-hmm. They both won the audition. That's basically what happened. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Although I'll tell you, here's a dirty secret. Ready, ready for this? Uh-huh. Sam bought this piece of technology that you can do a push-in close-up <laughs> right when the scene is getting a little juicy. And I just started laughing my ass off. I was like, oh, my God, this guy wants this so hard. <laughs> but you, were, you called me the first time you had seen Sam. And you were just so excited about the potential of this guy. And you basically said, he's going to be next to impossible to beat. And sure enough, he, nobody uh, nobody could really touch him. But you, from the very first time you uh, you saw his audition, you were pretty convinced that we had our list on. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this finale. Now, did you always know that that's how the season would end? With the reveal of Armand. And the murder of Lestat. Murder in quotes. Hey, Mark, should I open it up? You bet. Let them know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Here you go. Naomi, very early on, when we were talking about making this thing, and we're in the writer's room and we're in pre-production, a very exciting thing happened. A lot of this had to do with uh, lumber, the cost of lumber, and COVID. Um, <laughs> oh. And we were writing scripts for the entire book, the whole enchilada. And there was this kind of like just lovely call that came from AMC and it's like, hey, guys, Let me ask you a question. Is there enough story in the first half of this book to stay in New Orleans for a season? And, you know, my first thing was... (laughs) He did put up a real fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because fuck it, man. Are you kidding me? Ah! Um, So what we ended up doing was taking what was the first four and turning them into the first seven. (gasps) I know, right? (laughs) And Naomi... We did that 50 days before we shot our, our, our first day. Oh, my God, my stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My stomach. Yeah, yeah, There's a lot. Because, like, out there, folks, it's not that you can, like, hey, let's slide in something in between two. and th-. You literally, every, every break suddenly just changes. And it was, I think, to the benefit of the show. Mm-hmm. I think we made a better product because of the price of lumber and cobra. Because I think we were staring at the fact that we were not going to be able to do Europe in the same beautiful, detailed way that we were doing New Orleans. Mm. So suddenly a thing that I thought was probably, I think in my original pitch, 10 episodes, what we were aiming for was eight, is now a 15-episode mm. book. Okay. Was that the ending of my season one? It wasn't originally, but it, it became the ending. And, and right now it's impossible for me, anyhow, to imagine... The, how we would have packed all of that into uh, one season. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It feels natural. I mean, it doesn't feel rushed. Everything feels really earned. And there, there's such a movement to that finale, right? Meaning all that planning and everything happening and kind of like Claudia becoming this mastermind. For me personally, that kind of episode, it's one for the people. You know, it's one for everybody else. <laughs> um, because, you know, you're doing twists and turns and you're, you're kind of doing it like a thriller. 
you know, my favorite scene in there is probably the one that stops action cold, which is the balcony scene. Mm. That monologue that Lestat has where he's, you know, essentially saying one more time, even though at that point he knows they're plotting to kill him. I love you, Louis. It's all from Anne's novel talking about her love of New Orleans. He's talking about New Orleans in words, but he's saying that, that's you, Louis. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to miss all these moments that we had Mm -hmm. together. And thinking that this is all from Louis's memory, looking back on that moment with Lestat, it's like even more gutting. Memory is a very, very huge part of this show. The tagline for the show should be memory is a monster. Mm -hmm. We're only on episode seven of 15. You only know half of it, maybe. Mm, okay, okay. Now, let's listen to a few questions from the fans because people are calling in. Okay. They've got emotions. They've got questions. And I think you guys need to hear them. Hello, I am calling from sunny Southern California, which is like the worst place for a vampire to live. Um, but I have a question and I want to know how sympathetic do you think Lestat is? Because obviously... This man has some major flaws, but, you know, like the whole next book after Interview with a Vampire is a whole lot of backpedaling of Lestat's character being like, he's not so bad, he's not so bad. Spoilers for like a 30-year-old book, I guess. Anyway, how sympathetic do you think he truly is and how much do you want to show that? Mm. Okay, okay. These listeners are reading as well, okay? These people are taking a two-pronged approach. Right, 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 right. It's a good question. You know what, Naomi? Here's something that was really, really exciting and fascinating. When you have a show, seven episodes, we had four editors on this one, and it was so great to watch almost every single one of them initially go, boy, I really love that Louis. Oh, that Lestat, what a prick. And then as they were coming around, literally the same editor in the same episode going, I'm beginning to see it from Lestat's point of view. <laughs> like, um, And the more you spend time with it, I find Lestat wildly sympathetic And the way it's built, you're not going to see Lestat speaking for himself until season three. It's a big deal, right? You go ahead and have somebody else tell the world about you from their point of view. (laughs) If I had to line them up and say who had the most traumatic entrance into this world as a vampire, it's Lestat. You have no idea the baggage that he is carrying into North America. We are playing with point of view and stick with Lestat. He's got a lot of pain, folks. Okay. I think we've got another voicemail. Let's listen. So I absolutely love this show. Why is Louie truly doing this interview? From the beginning, throughout the whole series, he says, I want to redo. I want to give you the true story. I've changed. But yet he's still doing the same thing. He's dodging questions. He's being cagey. If so many things were off the table, then why did you bring this man all the way to Dubai to redo this? He could have stayed at home and lived his life and passed on. You brought him here, Louis. You did. Okay. I love, love the series, but that was a burning question for me. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Malloy and Louie in this dynamic. As you said, you know, memory. Memory is a monster. Yep. So what is Louie doing this interview for? It is absolutely the question. If you want to know um, what we're still, you know, digging out of, it is it is the why of it, right? Yeah. There's a real reason why this is the second interview. And the first interview is super important. Mm-hmm. Ha, ha, ha. Tune in season two. <laughs> and I will just say this. These two have been brought together because something very significant happened, life-altering happened to them in 1973. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get it right. And they weren't the right people at the time to do it. And now they think they are. And yet, like all of us, you still don't know who you are. <laughs> and you still got to go deeper. But that just means there is a lot of meat not only on Louis' side, but on Malloy's side, and most importantly, Armand's side, mm. who has become for us the single most fascinating character of season two. Oh my God. Yeah, there's a lot in Dubai that's yet to be revealed. Ooh, okay, this is juicy, but we have to keep going. Let's listen to our next listener question. Hey, this is Michael. I am a 
queer vampire aficionado. I grew up on the Anne Rice novels. My grandmother passed to me when I was in middle school, as inappropriate or appropriate as that may be. And now that there's this queer angle so explicit in the series, I'm so excited that I get to see a little bit more of that. But my question is, do we think that we've seen the end of Louis and Lestat's sex capades, sex life, and all the good steamy stuff? You know, are we looking forward to seeing a bit more of that hot, steamy, gay, awesome vampire loving? Anyway, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. So, it's AMC. We are trying to slide as much under the door as we possibly can. And we're really interested in the whole thing. The, the hotness, sure. But the dynamics and the love story and the ups and downs and the psychological torment and the, all, all of that stuff. If it's a love story, we're trying to write one that doesn't disappear after book one. But yeah, I mean, sure, you'll get some. It'll be there. <laughs> I mean, Armand's coming, folks. Eh, you know, um, and Lestat is a, a very fluid fella. Mm -hmm. There's a whole sea of stuff that's coming ahead. It should look like the sexual or history of the world. <laughs> There'll be something in it for everybody. <laughs> okay, we have another, we have one more, one last hard-hitting question from the listeners. Hey, okay, so I'm watching Interview with the Vampire for the 50,000th time. I'm sitting up here thinking to myself, can a can a vampire like can he lose weight? Can he gain weight? Like can a vampire go to the gym and pump up? Like I mean their their diet obviously is blood, but you know did you did you get some omega threes in your blood and, and it pumped you up? Like obviously when you become a vampire, whatever you look like then that's what you're gonna look like for eternity. Like if you got crossy lines, you crossy lines for eternity. Like if if Louis bites Malloy, Malloy gonna be that old ass man. For eternity. Like, he ain't gonna go back to young, my lord. Keep doing what you're doing. It's my Sunday obsession. Have a great day. <laughs> oh, you know, you sit on all these these things forever, and you edit them down, edit them down, and you never want to see them again. Whoever that woman is, if she want, if she was sitting next to me, I would rewatch all these shows. I really would. That <laughs> That is who I would want to watch this show with. You're the best. I know. We're going to start tweeting at each other, I'm sure. Our listeners are incredible. And these are some wonderful questions. So thank you all for calling in. Now, I know I have to let you both go soon. But first, can we talk a little bit about what's to come? <laughs> you had hinted that you're thinking this show can go on for many seasons. But how long exactly are you thinking? Listen to this. The real reason why... I wanted to do this show, season three. The Vampire Lestat. Oh, I really know how I want to do The Vampire Lestat, and I couldn't be more excited about it. I think as goofy as body switching is, and we'll come up with some elegant way, I think there's something in The, the Tale of the Body Thief. Queen of the Dam is going to be a... You know, I'm going to think on that uh -huh. one. How to do Queen <laughs> of the Dam is just such a massive object. Whether that's one or two seasons, who knows? Mm -hmm. I'm in it for the long haul. I, you know... I'm following Rollin wherever he's going. You know, I'm involved, thanks to AMC, in a number of Anne Rice projects. We also have uh, Mayfair Witches and, a, yes. and other things that Rollin and I are executive producing Ooh. that are going to come from her works. So it's a long-term commitment, which I'm really happy about. And honestly, three years ago, I wouldn't have known. Her characters are so incredibly relatable, and they are we. You know, they're no, they're no difference, except maybe they have a couple of little uh, habits that we don't have. But they're lonely, they want love, they want to belong, and that's why she's so en enduring. Right, right. Well, speaking of Mayfair Witches, I'm actually going to be talking to Alexandra Daddario later on in this episode. And Mark, you do have this access in working on all these shows, seeing these bigger pictures. How do you see each individual show existing in this Anne Rice universe that AMC is creating? Do you think if you loved Interview with the Vampires, you will love Mayfair Witches? Do you think it's filling, attracting a different audience or filling in a gap? It's interesting. No, not necessarily, because they're all so completely different. If you pay a close attention, you'll realize who they came from. They came from the same person, the same woman whose concentration, stylistic, thematic, 
are very much the same. But Mayfair Witches is not Interview with a Vampire. And yet, uh, I want to believe, I believe it's every bit as satisfying and it won't necessarily have the exact same audience. But that's, that's really kind of wonderful. And that's the way we're approaching the future. She has given us this wonderful um, sandbox in which to play and we're going we're gonna to be in there for some time. <laughs> Sometime, strap in. <laughs> You've got a decade at least. <laughs> Right. In the world of Anne Rice. Okay, both of you. So you better be ready. Let me just say one last thing, because um, th- this is new to me. I never, I had never been to Comic-Con before, uh-huh. and I was quite surprised and quite taken aback and shockingly moved by the sincerity and authenticity of fandom. It, it reminded me of how I have felt about certain things, and it's been really, really cool, the level of intensity and love, and really appreciate all the love and patience and open-heartedness y'all out there have have taken for the show. We all love it the same way. Oh my goodness, my heart is warm. What you have done so far is amazing, and I want to thank you guys so much for a wonderful season of television, the new season that is to come, and for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Naomi. Rollin teased his version of the vampire Lestat. I cannot wait. AMC, shoot it into my veins. But luckily, like Mark said, we don't have to wait too long for more Anne Rice. This January, Mayfair Witches, based on Anne's witch trilogy, is coming to AMC. Mayfair Witches, colon, too witch, too furious. We have the inside scoop from Alexandra Daddario, who plays the main witch, Rowan Mayfair. I have been so deep in vampire land that prepping for this, I realized I have so many witch questions. It's like, do witches have the cloud gift? Do they live forever, but like in a more fun way? Most importantly, can they have less toxic relationships than vampires? Y'all, we got to find out. Alexandra Daddario, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's start with the basics, because a lot of our listeners, they're vampire stands, and they might not even know that Anne also wrote books about witches. So can you just give us a little taste of what the series is about and what character you're playing? What Anne Rice was so amazing at was putting ordinary people in these extraordinary circumstances. So the Mayfair Witches series is that, but with witches. So it's Rowan Mayfair, my character, finds out that she is a witch and she's from a different family than she thought she was from. And she's discovering who she is as she goes through finding out that she has this other side of her and the balance of good and evil and who is she really and who is she now that she finds out that she's... uh, Unique, so to speak. Yes, so to speak. Definitely unique. Now, when we talk about the Mayfair witches, what's the vibe of these witches? You know, are we talking Hocus Pocus? Are we talking Sabrina Teenage Witches? Are we talking Charmed? This has a almost a dynasty feel to me, you know, really putting the coven vibes in it. Yeah, I mean, it's not broomstick. It's not wearing a witch's hat. It's not a cauldron. It's none of that. It's... People, they each have their own different abilities and some of them do not, but it's essentially a really dysfunctional family. (laughs) Not all of us, but a lot of us have some dysfunction in our families. (laughs) No, we all do. We all do. Okay. We need to embrace it. (laughs) Everyone's got some dysfunction. That's right. And can you imagine if you gave these dysfunctional people powers and (laughs) billions of dollars? And I guess we do do that in the real world, don't we? But I think- that that's where a lot of the fun of this comes from. It's none of the cliche witch Mm -hmm. stuff, but there's so much all-encompassing about what you can have power-wise as someone who's a witch. Right, right. Let's just talk a little bit about sort of Rowan as a character who, as you said, discovers this about herself. She's also a neurosurgeon. She is a damn good one. But we really see the extent to which she is in a boys club that is blocking her out, that will not allow her to be her best. Because I'll tell you, Rowan does some things by accident where I said, get it. Do what you got to do, girl. Yeah. I was on board. Me too. (laughs) It's interesting because what is good and what is evil, right? I mean, are you allowed to hurt someone who who is oppressing you or who is in this case, trying to keep 
my character keep Rowan from advancing in her medical career. Mm -hmm. She toes this line between good and evil. And I think being a neurosurgeon, there's a sense of, oh, I'm someone who heals Mm -hmm. and I'm a good person. But in reality, what is it really that Rowan is trying to achieve? She's trying to gain power. She's trying to be a change. And things that stand in her way are causing her to do things she doesn't she doesn't understand. And then, yeah, like you said, she finally comes into her own and says, you know what, I'm going to choose to use this however I feel is required. I'm mm-hmm. going to use this power to hurt people however I I want to, and I have this power and control over the world. And can you justify doing bad things by saying, well, I've decided this is good for whatever reason. So that's really fun to explore a character who's pretty dark. And this is where I think, you know, for the people who've seen Interview with a Vampire, we'll find a lot of overlap because... Rowan's journey is very similar to Louis's journey because we have Louis as a black man in the 1910s in the South. So talk about being pushed down, right? Yeah. But certainly he wants this power. And then he gets this vampire power that now, okay, now how does he wield this? What's good? What's bad? And I think it is, you know, similar for Rowan as a woman in medicine, even though, of course, this is present day. And she is still dealing with, you know, wanting power, wanting control, wanting to step into what is rightly hers, given her skill. Like, she's not asking for too much. But I see it as the insecurity of people around her. That's why they're pushing her down. Oh, totally. They can't have her out here young and better. Well, a lot of the worst things in the world come from jealousy, insecurity. And then it's this cycle of people trying to gain power and and climb over each other and and then hurt each other and then push people down. It's all really this giant power struggle. And Anne Rice was fascinated by this, by right and wrong and power and how to control the world around you and control yourself. And, and it's really interesting that she explored it through vampires and witches and sex. And I'm sure more people have heard of Interview with the Vampire than The Witching Hour. Um, which is the first in the Mayfair Mm -hmm. Witches series. But I encourage people to read it because it's just, it's fascinating where she'll take the story. And Mm -hmm. that's what we did with the series. We really, we we went there. I know in your career, you've done a lot of genre, but in your personal life, are you a fan of genre? Are you into like the witchy, the Halloween-y, the scary in general? Do you go spooky? I'm not a big horror film person. I love being, and I actually think that this type of material, fear, helps people understand the world around them. And we relate to all this stuff. Even Mm -hmm. though it's so out there, there is a relationship that we have with fear and a relationship we have with with the extraordinary. So that's how I really approach this stuff. I personally... I'm a rom-com girl. Okay. <laughs> so I like to sit down and, and watch like rom-coms, but okay. I, I'm fascinated by horror. Mm-hmm. Another thing I think that is similar between these two shows, Interview with a Vampire and Mayfair Witch, is that, you know, both vampires and witches look like normal people, but they're anything but normal. And both stories explore the grief and pain that comes with having these powers. Do you think being a witch having the powers that a witch can have, do you think that that's a gift or a curse? Um, I I would think it was a gift. Uh-huh. <laughs> but we all think we're good, right? You know, we all have a little bit of, oh, well, if I had that those kind of powers, I would use them for good. I would never, ever do anything wrong with them. But like how power corrupts, mm-hmm. you don't know how you're going to react. We're all human at the end of the day. And I think that's what this book explores and what the show explores is who are you really? Who do you think you are? What are you going to do with these powers? What do have other people done with them? What do the people who don't have the powers but want them, how do they feel about you? How are they going to treat you? How is your how are your interactions with them? And that's very true of real life, especially in the current world we live in. Okay, but real talk though, would you want to be a witch though? Would you want to be a witch? You can tell me. Yeah, I would love to be a witch. Yeah, <laughs> I would love to be. But I would be like a cauldron type of like putting spells on people. <laughs> you know, it just depends what kind of witch you're talking about. <laughs> if you're just talking about powers in general, I think it's better that we don't all have them, even though I want them. Exactly, exactly. I'm with you. I'm like, not everyone should have them, but I'd be pretty good at it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
Alexandra, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. We are all very excited for Mayfair Witches. Thank you so much. Ooh, okay. I am so into this. I might actually be ready to join a coven. Is there a coven-specific Craigslist? Okay, anyways, Mayfair Witches premieres January 8th on AMC and AMC+. Plus. You do not want to miss it. This is going to be a banger, y'all. Oh, God. Here we are. Here we are. Here, look at me. Look at me. I'm interviewing for the next show because I just am not ready to leave, y'all. We've reached the end of our podcast season. I can feel the tears coming, so I have to keep this brief, okay? I have had such a great time watching this show with you all and hearing from you along the way. Many of you have called in and left incredible voicemails with Anne Rice trivia, your future episode ideas, and occasionally TMI about your personal life. Uh Uh-huh, I heard you. So here are just a few of the ones that spoke to my heart. Hi, Naomi. Hey, Naomi. Hi, Naomi. Hello, my name is Rhiannon. This is Madison from Atlanta. This is Nicole calling from Toronto. I am a huge fan of the podcast, and I had to stop right in the middle of making my lunch to call you. I just want to say I am psychotically in love with this show. What a hot gay romp. Oh my goodness, I have so many questions. What would you suppose dictates a vampire's zodiac sign? Would it be their birthday as a human, or would it be the day they were turned? Let's talk about how, like, Louis is not all good. Louis is definitely a cancer. I don't want to eat people. Dude, you're a vampire. And Lestat is not all bad. Let's face it, Lestat is a Leo. Then you have Claudia, who is absolutely a Taurus, loves sitting in the lap of luxury, and exquisitely melodramatic because she wants food. I had never heard of Sam Reed. I had never heard of Jacob Anderson, but I'm a lifelong fan now. As a drag queen semi-professionally, I just have to say that Lestat is maybe the new queen of the dance. All due respect to the previous ones, Lestat is fierce. Sam Reed is like a ballerina. The name of the last episode needs to be called Dropping Bombs. Oh my god, girl, we are being played with Rashida's Armand. Claudia played them all to perfection. There were so many bombs dropped in this episode. What is happening? I can't even feel. I have a very uh, interesting relationship with interview with the vampire. I started reading Anne Rice when I was in middle school. They have made some big changes, but it's so very true to the original novels. AMC's interview with the vampire promised us an effed up gothic romance, and it has delivered. I'm totally blown away. I never even watched TV. Oh my gosh, I'm just gonna be real. I want Louis to bite me. I will be a vampire. I I love him. He's hot. You know, if you ever meet Louis, can you time to call me? Thank you for your hard-hitting journalism. Thank you for this grander-than-life vampire story. Thank you for the drama I didn't even know I needed. You are my rock through this raging sea of vampire melodrama. Have a wonderful, fantastic day. Oh my God. Thank you all for joining me on this scary, gay, sexy roller coaster. And I will see you next season in Paris. Thank you for listening to the AMC Plus Interview with the Vampire podcast. You can stream the entire first season of Interview with the Vampire right now on AMC+. This is an AMC Networks podcast produced in partnership with Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at AMC Networks are Kevin Dreyfus, Celia Quinnett, and Brian Swarth. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our managing producer is Bria Mariette. Our producers are Ben Goldberg and Aaron Kelly. Our associate producer is Natalie Paird. Darby Maloney is our editor. Mixing and engineering by Hannes Brown. Thank you to Asad Zaman, Rollin Jones, Mark Johnson, and Alexandra Daddario for joining us. And I am Naomi Paragon. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees.